doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving. Welcome to the Evil Track Coaching Podcast, brought to you by EvilTrackSport.com. This is episode number one, The Doctor. I'm not sure what exactly made me want to have this discussion, but I'm so glad I did. You're about to meet Dr. Scott Samlin. Husband, father, boxer, hospital builder, manager, stress junkie, and doctor. But not just any doctor. Scott is an emergency medicine physician and CEO of Northwest Indiana ER and Hospital. It sits just outside of Chicago, across the Indiana state line. There he has been one of the frontline workers in the fight against COVID-19 for the past six months. Before that, however... For 15 years, he was an emergency room physician and leader for a number of inner-city hospitals in Chicago, dealing with some of the hairiest, most professionally challenging experiences a doctor can face, often managing multiple life-and-death crises literally at the same time. I wasn't sure when I asked Scott to sit down and talk with me if I was going to be able to make the case that the picture he painted of his and his colleagues' experiences were even remotely relative to ours as coaches. But from the moment he started talking about his work, I knew this would be valuable. It's like he and his colleagues live under this menacing overhead conveyor belt that randomly but surely trundles off its end down into their laps these giant intensive highs and burdensome heavy lows, not to mention sporadic inspiring successes and soul-bruising deflating failures. It's a life that tosses them up, down, forwards, backwards, sideways, round and round, then back again, occasionally stopping just long enough to let them go home to a different, more personal reality. That can't be easy. So why do it? Sure, the money's good, but like a lot of my colleagues in sport, these people are brilliant and very accomplished. They could be making far more doing other kinds of things, other kinds of medicine. Why put up with the chaos and the headaches? Well, as a great Canadian poet once wrote, nothing worth having comes without some sort of fight. You've got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Does all that sound familiar? Well, it should. At least if you're a committed coach, it should. You see, Scott is my neighbor. And over the past year and a half or so, while passing between our homes and getting to know one another, we've had numerous chats regarding his work, my work, its impact on our families, and the overlap of our experiences both professionally and personally. Yeah, I know, coaching isn't exactly ER medicine. In fact, at first glance, it's miles from ER medicine. But it is important, meaningful work. The kind of work that attracts, at least in my mind, the same types of personalities that get drawn into Scott's world. Those who can mentally shift from whiplash-triggering multitasking to an extreme rigorous focus divorced from the attention-sucking pandemonium that often surrounds them. And they must go from one to the other in just a breath or two. To do this, one must be an all-in-one passionate humanist, benevolent taskmaster, and top-shelf problem-solver that thrives off a chaotic environment. Outsiders might call such environments bedlam, but we call it work. In short, both attract those who demand success and despise, maybe even fear, failure. You know, having said all that, now that I think of it, 
maybe the gap between our seemingly distant professions isn't so far apart after all. Maybe the only difference in terms of the impacts we have on others' futures has to do with scope and timelines. Ours are small, measured over months, years, or even decades. And theirs? Well, theirs are titanic, measured in mere hours, minutes, or even seconds. Now, for better or for worse, here's my discussion with Dr. Scott Samlin. So how you doing, man? I'm great. Yeah? I'm actually doing pretty well. Thank yeah? You. Day off today. Day off today. Worked last night. How's the coffee? All right? Excellent. Good. Good. Today's a good day. Yeah, good, good. Did you hear about the murder at Grandin? <laughs> you got to narrow it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grand, Grand and Diamond? Grand and Damon? Grand and Damon the other day. Yeah, three blocks away from our house. Sure. Yeah, three blocks. <laughs> oh, God, God. How would you describe our neighborhood? Because I was like, like, I love living here mm -hmm. and everybody I talk to, like, you know, back home, you know, they ask me, you know, they're always asking me, oh man, you're living in Chicago and we live right next to, you know, it starts getting pretty rough as you go south and west of here. Um, but uh, when I'm talking to my friends back home, they, they're like, how could you, you know, but, it, it, you know, but I say to them, well, you know, you, you kind of have to be here. It's a really cool neighborhood. I really love living here. But we're, we're like kind of the last, um, how do I say this without, you know, sounding, you know, our neighborhood, like you go out of our neighborhood and it starts getting rougher. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I go down there all the time. I take my son down there all the time. I don't mind riding my bike through there. But there are, you know, as you, you know, it starts to get kind of crazy. But but I love Chicago, man. I mean, I love, and this is the first place I've ever lived where I've interacted with my neighbors mm -hmm. the way that we do, like you guys. So just, just to set some context here, you are not just my neighbor, you're my next door neighbor. Right. And we live in identical homes. Correct. Built by this builder. How far apart are our homes, you think? Five feet? If that. If that, yeah. I don't even think it's five feet. I don't think you and I could lay down and straight in between. No, we're, we're on top of each other. Yeah, 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 for sure. So um, are, are you from Chicago? Um, from the suburbs, but yeah, pretty much born and raised. Okay, and, and Melissa is from Jersey? New Jersey. Right, right, okay. So um, you guys have two kids. Um, how old's Jack? Jack's one and a half. He's one and a half now. And Ricky so just turned three. Just turned three, so... Paul, I just was arranging with Melissa today. Polly and Polly and Ricky are going to make cookies tomorrow. Oh, nice. Maybe tomorrow or the next day. I'm not sure. Awesome. I, I have to. You and I have to talk about uh, next weekend too. Getting together for Christmas, but but um, yeah. Point is, is that you know we live next to each other and we've gotten to know each other over the last year and a half, and you know we've had a few discussions and learning what you do and your some of your experiences even where you went to school i i i thought you know i've been turning this in my head as i've been waiting for this my work visa to sort of come through and get back to the work on my website and start this podcast you know i thought that this would be a great interview because you know and i don't know where it's going to go i don't know i mean maybe maybe coaches won't get a lot out of it or whoever it's going to listen to it but i just thought that maybe there's some crossover there in terms of the experiences that you've had and I know coaches go through that just, you know, might be a little different, something they haven't heard before. And 
you know, you might have some insight uh, for sure, because based on the discussions you and I have had in the past, um, yeah, so I think, so what do you think? You yeah, I think that's great. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's great, great intro. Cool, yeah. okay. So is, like, what do I call what you do? You're, so you're an ER doc, okay? You just opened your own ER. Correct. which is in Indiana, mm -hmm. which sounds a long ways away, but it's really not. You're just on the other side of the border, so it takes you, what, 40 minutes to drive Correct. or something yeah. like that? I've been there, so you've, mm -hmm. you've taken me on a tour. It's cool. It's kind of like a drive-through ER, sort of, right? It's like a small, I, I don't want to sort of diminish it, but I mean, it's, it's really, really advanced, high tech, but you are like, it's, it's a small ER hospital, and that's all you do, right? So <clears throat> the reason why we did this is that I've been working in ER for 15 plus years. And a lot of what we, we, I've seen the face of medicine change. A lot of it has been taken away from clinicians and a lot of it's done by bureaucrats, right. pretty much. People who have never been in the bedside of the patient making decisions up high and just kind of bring it down to the, to the physicians and the nurses and say, this is, this is what we're doing now without seeing a patient and more more is placed on metrics in terms of how quickly you see the patients, how quickly you get them in the ER, what's your admission rate, what's your discharge rate, um, are you making sure you check the boxes so the government pays the money that's owed to us. S and it, so it's, 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 became, it's became pretty, and uh, at the same time, you, um, you have to make sure that all the boxes are checked in order for the hospital to get reimbursed in, in order to, for, for you to get paid, and a lot of it, it it's, it, I think it's a detriment of the patient. Like right. you, and then also you have something called Prescania, which are scores that patients get. And it's a very difficult position because number one is that you wanna take care of your patients. At the same time, you gotta make them happy. And it's kinda difficult if you're bottlenecked right, at the hospital. Right, I mean, right. How can you have a good score if you're waiting in the hallway or waiting for three hours for a test or you're waiting for three hours to go upstairs because all the rooms are full? Right. So a lot of this is beyond our control and we're asked to do things that I mean, it's it, it's almost impossible. Right. I well, you just walked right into a crossover, because that's something that that I fought my whole career against, right? Which is the 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 challenge of you know having to manage a sport, or in your in your situation, a hospital, because somebody's got to do that, and they have to you know they have to. There's an expertise to that. Sure. But then the people on the ground, the ones who are actually doing it, in your case, it's doctors, in my case, it's coaches, they have a certain way of doing things, right? And they, and they know, I mean, obviously, they're the ones who know what really needs to be done, but these bureaucrats get, you know, they get wrapped up in their own shit and, you know, they start getting on the hamster wheel and, and it does all become about metrics and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, we see it on, at all levels, coaching, education, uh, performance, everything. Um, and, when I was in Britain, this is, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you. So when I worked in Britain, we were, um, I was, uh, I was a center director for an Olympic training center. Okay. Um, that was set up, funded before the London Olympics. Okay. And there was two of them. I was a director of one and a good friend of mine, Dan Paff, he's American. He was a director of the other. Okay. His was to serve London athletes. Mine was to serve everybody else in the UK. Okay. So 
the best analogy I think I could come up, oh, as going into a home Olympics, okay? This is not just any Olympics. This is a home Olympics in Britain. It would be like, it, it, which is like the Super Bowl of Olympics for them, right? Because, you know, track and field is, is up there as a sport. It's probably one of the top three sports in England. So, you know, it's like, it was like being, you know, like imagine you're coming into the apocalypse and you're in Israel and there's only, there's two synagogues and you're a rabbi in, in, and I'm the, I'm the rabbi in one of them. My buddy's a rabbi in the other. Right. Mm -hmm. And the way that they, the way that the leadership was set up with UK athletics was they hired for that four year period going into the Olympics. They hired people, coaches to do these management and leadership roles. Right. And that was great. We did a great job, but we all hated it. It's not us, right? It's, it's just not us. It's just not, that's not what we, you know, we, we all wanted to be coaching, right? And, and we took the job because, you know, the, it was exciting. The money was good. The opportunity was fantastic. I don't have no regrets about doing it. But, but that's, but I mean, the, the point of that, all of that is, is that at the end of four years, and we were very successful. Mm -hmm. At the end of four years, we all left. We were like, fuck this, man. Because we, we just like, we, you know, we were all burned out, right? Because it's just, it just, it's that kind of, of thinking that just grinds down the people that like to be in the mix, right? They Correct. like, they like the hands-on and, and doing that. And so it sounds like, you know, you're going through the same thing. So your, your solution was to set up your own shop. Absolutely. I'm going to paraphrase. I, I, I read something and it was just on point about being an ER doctor or a nurse or working in the ER. And again, this is a paraphrase. Um, I consider an ER doctor to be a pilot on an airplane. Okay. Just imagine the airplane is a decrepit, fallen apart airplane. Inside of it, every single seat is full. And there's people in the alleys, in the galley. So it's totally packed. One patient is, is in four-point restraints because they're drunk and they're intoxicated. Another patient is, or another passenger is extremely sick and puking. You have kids that are running around. One person who's usually a psych is trying to constantly open up the, uh, while you're at 20,000 or 30,000 feet, trying to open the emergency exit so you have to have somebody to bring them down. And then at the same time, you're trying to manage all this. And at the end of that, if you don't crash your plane, oh, also, you're short-staffed on, yeah, yeah, right. you're short -staffed you on, on yeah. flight attendants. So yeah. you only have two people dealing with all this, and you have to oh. manage everything. And then... When you land the plane, everybody who's in the plane gets a survey and says, how was your experience? <laughs> exactly. It's just yeah. not tenable. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's bullshit. So yeah. what we wanted to do when we, we build our hospital, and a lot of us were like, look at man, things, things have got to change. And, and we said, what if we run our own shop, build our own hospital? And it'd be different. And this is what, you and a couple of buddies? Me and four other ER doc five other ER doctors. Okay. We had a blueprint. One of our partners out in Texas did it and it's been successful. So we said, what we're going to do is build a smaller model. 20,000 square foot hospital, eight ER beds, six inpatient beds, the full gamut of radiology. So MRI, CAT scan, ultrasound, x-ray. And give patients the experience that, that they deserve. Don't treat them as a number, treat them as a patient. So you have time, to, and we don't want to overcrowd it. So you sit down, talk to the patient, doctor seeing patients instead of like a mid-level who, you know, they're great, but 
they don't have the same skills and expertise as a doctor. I mean, we go to school for mm -hmm. 12 years. They go mm -hmm. three years, and they're great, but... Are these like interns becoming doctors? No, this is called oh. physician assistants or nurse practitioners. Okay. So they're usually, they go to school for three years, and they're right. set out in the world, and they're under the auspices of a, of a doctor, but sometimes they don't see the patients, and they can... And a lot of them, they're fantastic, but it's difficult in the ER. So uh, what we try to do is, is spend less time in front of a computer and more time with the patients. That's pretty much. And everything we do is geared towards the patient, not metrics, the patients. Well, yeah, so, cool. And we've done it, and, and I got to tell you, I mean, a lot of people, especially in healthcare, are so, are so fried, especially with COVID. People well, that's where it's going to go next. I mean, I don't want to get too into COVID because it's really not what I wanted to talk about, but I think I'd be derelict my duty if I didn't, if I didn't, we didn't mention it because you go and open up the, your own shop. It's this beautiful new hospital and you guys are, I mean, I remember going, when you took me on the tour, it was pretty cool. Um, but then COVID hits. Yeah. And you're just like, well, you were smashed before. Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But now... You know, it's now, and we're recording this. What it's what is it? December eleventh. Yeah. So we're where are we in this second wave? We're in the second wave. It's late twenty twenty. What? Uh, how are things? Is it still real bad? Because I mean, I remember talking to you. It was pretty pretty rough there for a while. Yeah, almost all hospitals run on capacity. So. Right. So it's, it's as bad as they it's, say. It's it's yeah, and and what drives I think everybody in healthcare field kind of nuts is that some people say it's a hoax and look i'm telling you i see it every day a lot of, like a lot of younger people are, are are gonna be okay right but the elderly patients and some patients who have comorbidities diabetes or obesity um they don't fare as well i mean right. i see people who are 35 40 who don't really have any underlying conditions incredibly sick on right. oxygen, on steroids, are, the, on are, are these are these hel Would you call these healthy people, or would you say generally they like normal normal guys you see on the street, like really, maybe yeah. a little overweight, but just normal guys. Yeah. And some of them do okay, and some of them like, why is this guy so sick? And we don't wow. know. Wow. We have some ideas, but and, and over the again, the scientific community has been great over the last six months trying to figure out this is what's working, this is not. Let's well, try yeah, this. I mean, it's, it's been it's, six it's years been to amazing. figure this shit out, right? I They're mean, really smart. It's, I, it's just. <sighs> so not fair how uh, some of these experts are getting you know everybody wants answers right away and i know i mean shit i know in coaching man you can't you need data like you you need time with an athlete to mm -hmm. to to get to understand what they're about what they're capable of doing it, that takes time there's no way to rush that right and and not all the money in the world is not going to help you and we we see that all the time you know you you put this is my experience in britain you put you force athletes into centers you the because the centers where all the money is a tons of and they don't do shit because or they don't do as well as the, as you think because you know you you the expectation is is that when you put them in there they're going to be it's, it's just better because you have everything but mm -hmm. that doesn't you know there's there's a certain measure of this that takes time to understand absolutely right? yes so. and, I, and i feel like parallels with athletes as well you have a strength and a conditioning code so how do you get an athlete or even a physician how do you get them to think quicker how to act act faster what data do you have to say this athlete does things better because of why 
it, it's not overnight. No. Is it fast twitch fibers? Fast twitch fibers is the way they train. Is it the way they perceive what mm -hmm. they need to do? How fast are, are are they going to the? And you need that's why coaching is so important. Kind of yeah. like, yeah. I think the parallels between teaching a resident how to become a attending physician, as well as teaching an amateur athlete who has talent how to get them to the next level. Right. Right. And you've got to throw in the mix. Right. Right. Well. You know, yeah, I mean, what, what people, what coaches don't understand a lot of times is when you're talking about metrics or you're trying to study something, right? And I would imagine it's the same when you're trying to deal with this disease. It's like, just because you have a couple of studies or a little bit of information that, that points you in one direction doesn't mean shit, yeah. right? I mean, you, you need, that's why it takes years to develop some of these things. You, you need lots of it because you know, there's a difference between causation and correlation. Just mm -hmm. because the two things are in front of you does not mean that they, that one is causing the other, right? And, and, and I can see why they're hesitant to, you know, uh, for, for people who don't understand that concept, I can see why they would look at it and say, oh yeah, well, it's simple. You, you have the answer right in front of you. Why the fuck didn't you, you tell us? Well, it's because, you know, we know that that may not be the answer right? right like just because we have a little bit of so it takes a while and it's it's just so you see them beat up on these experts and it's you know it's not it's not right so I, you know there's yeah i totally get that but but so okay so you've been uh it ha it's been tough it's been difficult you guys are dealing with it that you know um and are we getting better right now you don't know yet. You don't know. I don't. I, I think it's too soon. Yeah, it's still. too soon. I, I think we have a better grasp on how to take care of patients who are really sick. Right. I, I think we're learning just, again, like we talk about sheer numbers of patients that we see. And I think it, it, it's, it's pretty cool to be in healthcare and be a doctor right now, even from social media, on Facebook group chats, like, hey, we've tried this with XYZ's patient. It seemed studies are coming out. So, I feel like social media and just these group chats we're talking about, like this is working with these patients. People are adapting it. So we have to adapt so quickly. Yeah. And it's been pretty cool that the collaboration. Like, so I have friends now in Italy when this all started. Remember oh, that? Wow. This was like a year ago. Yeah. Saying th it's terrible. Remember how bad it was? I think it was yeah. February. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of 20, how yeah. bad it was. Yeah. and. People were just dying left and right, and I feel like okay, they were saying this is what works, and then people in Germany were saying this is what we're doing, and then it, when it hit U.S., we had some knowledge of what's going on, how we can kind of prepare for it, right. and I feel like the the scientific community has been, I mean, I think it's a real privilege to work in medicine. I mean, I know it's terrible being a pandemic, but I hopefully we never see another pandemic yeah. in our lifetime. Last time, pandemic was 1918, right, the Spanish right. flu. So we were kind of in the front lines, and this is what we're trained to do. So it's pretty cool that we see on a day-to-day -day basis and we actually are making a difference in a patient's life, which is pretty cool. I just want to make a note right now. If you're listening to this and you're hearing movement and some weird breathing, it's my dog is sitting on my lap, <laughs> Bandit, who, by the way, your son absolutely adores, okay, and uh, and your daughter, but your son only has a connection with my This is only friend, man. Yeah. It's COVID. I mean, he's one and a half. He's got one. He's got two friends. And one's a dog. He's got, That's awesome. He's got a 50-year-old man and a dog. Yeah. That's yeah, buddy. Yeah, it's me and Bandit are, are Jack's buddies. Yeah, for sure. He's a great kid. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that near the end here. But um, so, 
So this collaboration with these, with these, uh, with these colleagues, is that something that is set up for you? Like, is that something that the medical establishment, quote unquote, has is has set up a sort of a portal, or are you guys just reaching out wherever you can to whoever? It's completely grassroots. Really, hey, cool. that's cool. Completely grassroots. Yeah. Like I'm on one of the things called the EM Docs. It's that Facebook group, and every day it's like, hey, I'm trying X, Y, Z. Oh, cool. What do you think about that? And there's there's brilliant people. Like if you look at the study of three years ago, and there's a lot of like people who are much smarter than me saying studies or seeing the, it's it's just really cool how people are working together and collaborating and it's not political it's just like how do we get patients oh God, better God. it's pretty cool that, yeah. and and of course That's coaching, have, dude. it's not it's not blue or red of course you have crazies on both sides but yeah. it's pretty much this is what's working it's nothing politicized it's like how do we get our patients better right. so it's, it's been really cool it's you know that's again wow so this is great because you know uh coaching is the same thing right like so in coaching Typically what you have, there's sort of two streams of education, right, in coaching. One is the formal stream that may come from a university or some kind of, you know, an academic source or a sport federation will, uh, will create their own. And these can be really good, right? Like, but typically they're 10 years behind what's mm -hmm. really going on, right? Like what the cutting edge coaches are doing. The other stream is what you just said, right? It's mentorship that coaches, that coaches um, create themselves. Like when I was a young coach, I mean, I was up in fucking Podunk, Canada in the middle of the mountains. And I had a, my first big athlete was an athlete who won a medal at the World Junior Championships in the 400. And so all these U.S. coaches started to recruit him, and I was getting phone calls. And I got this phone call from a guy named Dan Papp. And Dan Papp is, is, you know, he's at the top of the coaching education and performance. And I mean, he's got like a dozen Olympic medalists under his belt. Oh, no, no. He's the other, he's the guy that was the sure. other center director and pretty, became a good friend of mine. He was recruiting this guy. I got to know him. Ultimately, the athlete, he, he didn't go to, he ended up not going to the U.S., but I made four pilgrimages down to where he was coaching. Uh, the, uh, we, Canada had a sprinter named Donovan Bailey. You may or may not yeah, have heard of him. Okay, him, so he, he won in Atlanta, right? And on Americans' home that. turf, right? Yeah. And his, our relay team, I don't know if you remember this, but we beat the Americans in the four by one in Atlanta, okay? The first time in history that anyone had ever beaten the Amer the um, it was the first time in history that anyone had beaten the Americans in the four by one when the Americans were able to get the baton around. So if the Americans didn't drop it, they never lost. It's the first time ever, and we beat them on their home turf, right? Well, Dan coached I think three of the four guys on that team, but he's American, okay? So I made four pilgrimages. Pilgrimages. I have a hard time saying that word. Uh, down to Texas, and he he was in Austin. He still lives there. And, you know, that changed everything for me, man. It opened up a whole world of, of like, oh, my God, this is what's possible? You know what I mean? The, no fucking books weren't telling me this. Like, you know, so it's the same sort of thing. But anyways, let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, God, we could go on forever now. I'm seeing this, this could go on forever. But it, I, I know you're, this is your day off. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So, so that's what you're doing. That's great. Um, but. That's only you. How long ago did you open the hospital? Eight months? 
Six months. Six months ago. Okay. So before that, as you said, you had 15 years in ER. Uh, is it ER medicine? Is it trauma medicine? Is that Emergency what medicine. What's that? Emergency medicine. Emergency medicines. Okay. So before that, you were an ER doc in, here in Chicago. You're at five hospitals. And yeah. you had an oversight of those, right? Like mm -hmm. you were some, you were a I'm the regional director. So. You were a regional director. Yeah, so okay. the medical director of each of those sites reported back to me. Okay. But you were, you were an yeah, on working. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the second time I ever, I'll never forget this, man. The second time I ever met you was you were coming in from the, oh, and you, you coming out of your, your Raptor, your Ford Raptor. And I was like, and I remember seeing the Raptor on the street going, oh my, this is like my favorite truck, right? You know? I love it. And I'm like, who, oh, who's driving the Raptor in this neighborhood? And it turns out, oh, this is my neighbor. Oh, great. Anyways, you, you were coming in and we were chatting and you were just, you just, you looked like fucking, like you death warmed over at, at the, you were just beat to shit. And I remember, uh, I said, you know, uh, we had introduced ourselves before, but it was really fast. And so you came in and we talked for about 10 minutes and you said to me, he goes, yeah, or you said to me, you go, uh, yeah, man, I just, we had 14 shootings last night on this one. I think it was either on your shift or in the, whatever. And I was like, what? That's, I, I mean, you, you have to understand where I come from. I'll bet you the hospital that serves the region I come from in Canada has not had 14 shootings in five years. Like, it would not surprise me. I, I'm totally pulling that out of my ass. I don't know, but I'll bet you. So that's a pretty unique experience, right? Like, you, um, I mean, I can't think. I mean, how many hospitals get that kind of activity? I, yeah, I want to say only a handful, but it's not true because in the area that we live, you have Christ, University of Chicago, Cook County, which is now Stroger, Mount Sinai. I mean, those hospitals see a tremendous amount of volume of, of penetrating trauma every day. Every penetrating year. trauma? Yeah, penetrating trauma, which so. is either stabbings, Gunshots, etc. Life-threatening. Life-threatening, yeah. Crowbars. Crowbars. I mean, <laughs> crazy stuff. And it's, it's everybody who works, in, I mean... We got to tell the crowbar story. Can you tell the crowbar story or no? No. Uh, Can I tell it? I'll tell it. So... Well, I, you told me a story. Th this was not at my hospital, but a colleague of mine told us that there was like an argument in somewhere on the west side of Chicago and somebody tried to carjack some, somebody. So the guy picked up, it wasn't, yeah, it actually wasn't a crowbar. It was the lift they used to put to jack up a car. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, that's a that crowbar. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah, it's a crowbar. So yeah. you, you threw it in. So a guy a went pry to- A pry bar. A pry bar. Yeah. So a guy went to steal his car. So the guy took it and harpooned it. And it went through the guy's face. And he came in. It was my latest hospital. The guy came in, and he was alive. And I don't know how they did it, but it was literally impaled in the guy's face. We gotta, we and gotta the do, guy uh, lived. We got to find that guy and make him a javelin. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't believe And I don't know how he did it. Through a javelin, went lived. through a guy's face, through and through, and the guy's alive. I don't know how he was, but yeah. I you mean, know it's crazy, eh? Like what the body can take. And yet, this little virus comes along and can kill a guy who's. This, see, this is what this is what's crazy that we see. Like so, 
and again, my trauma surgeons, they, they deal primarily, they tend to the OR and stuff like We see people who get shot like 12 times, 12 times and are alive. And then we see- 12, 12, 12 times. Like at tw- once? Yes. And like alive and be okay. And sometimes they miss like every, yeah, maybe they perf their intestines, but they can do a colostomy and stuff like that. And you know, 12 times, just boom, 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 with 12 gunshots. You know, the trauma surgeons are amazing in Chicago. Right. You, know, you know, they'll take out part of the liver or they'll, they'll, they'll you know, put a colostomy for them and, you know, take care of the intestines and stuff like that. And they'll repair this stuff. And the guy will, like, live or the guy or girl will live. And then you see some person with a little, like, 9 millimeter get shot in one area and just die, which wow. is crazy. So wow. what's, the, what's the, I mean, okay, this is going to sound like a really naive elementary question, okay? So other than the heart and the brain what's the metric that you know once you what's the line where once you've crossed it that's it there's no there's no saving this person is there is it like they they've lost a certain amount of blood the blood pressure drops too low is it like like what where is it where you've gone past the point where homeostasis is ever going to bring them back so or is there that, that it so I've seen people literally come in dead, dead, and they get them back and they're alive. So, and I've seen people with GSW gunshot wounds, like the heart and live. Sometimes when you hit in the brain, really? yeah, hitting the like, I've GSW seen some, gunshot. Yeah, wounds. gunshot wounds. Yeah. You have an acronym for Sorry, it. Sorry, yeah, gunshot wounds, but <laughs> okay. it, it's and it it, it it doesn't make any rhyme or reason. But a lot of times when people come in, they get shot in the head. Like I've seen people live through that, but it depends if they come in and they're not responding to everything, it's pretty much, they're, they're done. But I've seen people get shot in the chest and code, which means they lose their vitals and stuff. And I've seen trauma surgeons open their chest, suture a bullet or put like a tamponade, like a little balloon, like a Foley balloon that they inflate and keep the heart like pumping. And these people like live, suture the heart and like these people are live. Oh my God. Uh-huh. It's called like a clamshell, which means they make a, they take a, a knife and they open up the chest cavity and they stick their hands in there, and they have a rib spread, and they get to the heart, and they flip the heart, see what thing, and they can either sew it or put a balloon in to stop, to stop the bleeding, and take them with the operator, and somehow they save their lives. I'm like, I, it, it, trauma surgeons are the most badass people I've ever met. Just badass. What, so, is there a personality archetype that is attracted to that? Like, you and I have had this discussion, right? Like, you, you love it. Yeah, right. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, it's like coaching. So, so there's like, you know, I love to be in the thick of things and the, you know, sure. at competitions and, uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but, um, you know, like being at an Olympics or world champs or something, but where it's crazy, but you know, like, do you, does it attract all types or, or, or do you see a common trait right. in, in the guys that are good that are, and got, I, or women that are, and good? I think that that's a great question. I, I think, so the ER, ER physicians are kind of like the mavericks of medicine. We, we are shift workers. We're on and we're off. And it's hard to leave it at the door, but... Right, because nobody makes an appointment to get shot. Correct, yeah. Right. And you have to be in your game all the time. Right. Like when you start your shift at 6 a.m., you don't know what's going to walk to the door. So you got to be in your game all the time. So it's not like you can go out and like, oh, I'll stumble through the shift. No, like the night before... Go to sleep earlier. Yep. Get in work because you have you have There's to have no your excuses. shit. To, yeah. No, you have to have your shit together all the time, which is pretty cool. And I think most ER doctors, and and it's it's we're strange people. I mean, we work nights, we work days, we're we're all over the place. 
And you have to be good at multitasking, and you have to be able to put your emotions on the side. Wow. So, yeah, like you, you have to have a game face all the time. Yeah. So you have, let's say, you have a room that's on fire. You have like twenty patients. You're running around. You get somebody who an OD or got shot. You have to. Okay, all right. I gotta go talk to the family. Talk to the family. So you gotta shut Sit it down. off. You, you, no, you don't shut up. You, 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 everybody's got their own their own spiel. Like right. I said, and I talk to the family. Hi, I'm Dr. Samlin. Nice to, I'm so sorry I have to meet you. What happened? I tell you, et cetera. I'm so sorry to tell you that James or Mike or Michelle um, died. Not passed away, not moved on. They, they died. And then they don't really hear anything. But I always say, you did everything right. There's nothing you could have done differently. You called on one. You did everything you can. This is not on you. I wish there was something you did. We did everything we can to, to keep them, unfortunately. We, we and in the back of your head, in those crazy moments, yeah. you know you got three other Mikes or Michelles waiting for you, right? Like, like, like people are going, "Holy shit, get Scott!" Right? Well, like, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, give me, like, you have to make sure the rooms, like, okay, I'll like tell the nurse, I'll be back in five minutes. Talk to the family, and it's heartbreaking. Like sometimes I cry. Wow. And if you stop, if that part of your job becomes easy, you got to find another career. Yeah, yeah. So, sure. but you can't shut it off. It's like you talk to the family, and then. Like you, have, you can't be like you're sad, you're emotional for like 30 seconds, and then let's fucking go. What right. do you have, because other pa- there's other people with chest pains or strokes or dizziness and other overdose they have to deal sure. with. So yeah. you you can't sit and kind of think about that moment. Yeah. Like let's fucking go. Yeah, and you can't. I, I I mean I don't know anything about what you do, but I but I would. If there's one thing I think I can safely assume is you can't pass that responsibility off to someone else. No, that's your it job. has to be the the, no. the doctor, right? Uh, uh, like, yeah. Fuck if I, if the you know if the uh, you know the accountant, the hospital accountant comes out and t- tells you that, and if it was me and my kid, I'd right. be pretty pissed. You know, I mean that's gonna that's gonna hurt. So, um, I, yeah, I do that, and, and most of the facilities I worked at were teaching residents, so. I never do a first year. I bring the first year resident or a second year, like kind of like probably athletes. You gotta train them. Like you can't just say, "Oh, tell those patients that their loved one died," mm-hmm. because they're not gonna remember anything until you tell them that person died. Everything after that, they're not gonna remember it. But you need, to, you can't stand at the door. You can't fold your hands. You sit down. You, you hold your hand. They hold their hand, or they talk to them. You need to sit down and be be a doctor, and you talk wow. to them, and you need to be compassionate. And that, and that's why I tell the residents, like, don't do it from the freaking doorway. Sit your ass down. Talk to the family, and a lot of times we learn about medicine, but the human touch, a lot of it, you, you don't have that. I mean, sometimes in residency, yeah, but nobody really sits down until you do it with an attending or you do it because you're not going to learn one. Do, do, do you get any counseling on this? In, yeah, in during residency. Yeah, during see, residency. During, that's, that's what's so great. It's kind of like athletes. It's like a mentorship. When you're right, residency, right. you go for or three coaches or four mentoring years. other coaches. Yeah. Or, and they yeah, kind right. of like do one, see one, teach one. Yeah. Yeah. So you sit down, you talk to it, and everybody yeah. finds their own their own way to navigate this, their own cadence to speak right. to patients. Right. And it just it, it that's what makes you all individual. You know, it's funny you say that because yesterday I was interviewing a buddy of mine, Stu McMillan, and one of the things we were talking about was you have mentors in coaching, like this Dan Paff guy that I was talking about. He's one of my mentors, and but I don't try to be like Dan. Right. Like in my coaching didn't really take off until I learned that. And I, I learned like I can't be like him. I can learn from him. Mm-hmm. I can learn from him, you know, what he does well and apply that to my own environment, and my own personality. But I can't be like him. I can't try to be like him. I don't want to try to talk like him. I have to do it my way. But 
he's going to show me, you know, the, the do's and don'ts and the ins and outs and things like that. And I have other mentors as well. So sounds like it's the same thing, right? Like you, you're, you're going to, you know, if the doctor walks into the room in that situation and it, and it's clear he's reading off of someone else's script, well, that's just as bad as the accountant coming in, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you know what I mean? It has to be personal. I don't know how it couldn't be personal to be, from my perspective, but I'm sure, you know. Um, you got to realize, I mean, this takes a mental and, and emotional toll on you, telling yeah. somebody, especially when you have kids die. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the hardest part. If you mm -hmm. have a pediatric death and you tell the family, and then, but there's nobody there to pick up the slack. Yeah. You got to work. So you mm -hmm. deal with that, and, and it's kind of like you, you take those feelings and you bury them deep, deep inside of you, and you go home and you fucking have a bourbon. <laughs> Out front with Derek and, and Cheney <laughs> and Ethan, yeah, which is... There's another thing I love about living here, man. In the summer, everybody stands out front and hangs out. That's fucking great. Um, in coaching, tell me if this resonates with you. So in coaching, one of the, you know, it's a very yin-yang kind of thing. So in the one, on the one hand, you want the personality that is attracted to coaching is one that can do a lot of the things that you discuss, right? Like we, we like the excitement, we're good at multitasking, you know? Um, but it, 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 when you become a professional coach, there's a certain part of it that where you, you have to be able to contain that or people want to contain that, right? So in other words, like it's, it's difficult right now, the way things are going with our, um, you know, the tolerance people have for anti non-PC type behavior, let's call it that, right? And people, you know, the, people are now expecting coaches to act a certain way, right? Be a certain way. But it's very, you know, that's a big ask because they also want the other side of the coach, right? They, they, they want the, they want the guy who is, you know, can rack bass, you know, think on his feet, his or her feet, um, you know, is passionate about what they're doing. They don't want the automatron, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want, nobody wants an automatron coaching their kids. But the problem is, is that the guy who, the guy or girl, woman who is that type of coach, a lot of times the, um, what comes with that is the, you know, they speak their mind. Right. They, they, they speak their mind. They they can't put up with bullshit. They they don't work well in bureaucracies like we were talking. And those two things are are hitting each other more and more in coaching. So it's like like when I was a younger coach, you know, I was uh, in a pretty isolated environment. I was being I was quite successful. Um, but I, man, I crossed a lot of lines, man. Like sure. in terms, in terms of, you know, I would swear in front of athletes and stuff like that. And, you know, today I wouldn't survive. Like there's no way that, that Derek Evely back in the nineties would survive right now in a, in a, in coaching in a club level. So, I mean, I've tried to change, but it's, it's tough because that expectation can squash down the passion right we we i guess what i'm saying is we have to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. um you know in terms of we want you know we want the passionate people because mm -hmm. the ones who are going to take accept coaching as a lifestyle other than a job right and 
but we, you know, but we're also burdening them with all of this. In your case, you know, uh, this, you know, this is why you got out of it, right? With all this administration or expectation, and that's that's. I think that's something we that we're gonna in coaching we're we're gonna have to deal with. Is that? It, it does resonate, but it tends to be they have the player coaches, and you know it, that the players like to form for. I can just talk about from my experience, just when I was training. If I had an attending who was, who was teaching me and coddled, you know, coddled me and say, oh, it's okay, you missed this, I didn't really learn from that. Mm. For me personally, I think there's got to be some type of accountability. So I'm more of the, I learn better when, say, Scott, uh, the shit sandwich, you did X, Y, Z well, that was great, but you could have done what this is, but keep on doing what you're doing. There's okay, got to yeah. be... I, I need like to. That. I need to have constructive criticism. Not saying yeah. you're a piece of shit. You should do it no. wrong. Just you did that well, but this is what you can prove on, and let's go for that. But there's got to be some type of accountability for like residents as well as your athletes when you're mentoring them. That's what I feel because otherwise they're not learning. If they're coddling, that makes that. I, I don't know. I think the standard should be excellence throughout, right. and just just that that's what that's where expectation is. You don't do mediocrity. Mediocrity is for somebody else. Right. You want to be excellent. This is what you need to excellent, but in a positive fashion. This is what my expectations for you, and be clear and concise. This is my expectations. This is what I expect you to do. And I, I got to tell you, I'm kind of hard on my residents because I want them to be good doctors, and I feel like you're doing disservice to your athletes if you're not kind of hard on them and tell yeah. them this is what you need because I don't know, but this is life and death we're dealing with. This yeah. Is like yeah, this is it. That's that, well, that is the difference. So I mean, and you know, I should have, I probably should have said at the beginning here. I mean, I'm not trying to compare coaching to what you do but i think you know there is a, you are dealing with life and death and and if a guy if a guy fucks up and it costs someone their life that's a big deal right huge deal. i mean that's a huge <laughs> huge deal so you know if a, if a young coach fucks up and an athlete loses a, a performance depending on where the level of that performance is i mean it it it's you know it's okay you know you can, they'll have other chances but but i'm in full agreement with you i mean you can't you know, there's a way to do it properly, right? You're right. There's, the, there's a way to do it properly, but some of us, I mean, I have zero tolerance for, um, I don't suffer fools well, right? And so I'm, I can, I can, at times I've, I've been known to be quite vocal and aggressive about it and, you know, I don't always do it the best way, but I'm in total agreement with you. I mean, because it has to, you know, it has, it has, in my opinion, in our world, even in our world, it has to get done right. It just, right. it just has to get done right. And, and yeah, you're right. And, and, I, and I agree with you. I, but I think fear, I think fear is good. I think, I think if you, if you take everything and you're not scared of anything, I think you're going to have a, a large downfall. I think fear is good. Fear prevents you from being a shitty athlete and a, and a shitty doctor. But at the same time, you can't let it paralyze you. I totally fucking agree so i had a i coached a girl in britain okay so part of my i was at the center director's system but i but i told them when i took the job if i can't coach if you don't let me do a little bit of coaching i'm not taking the job mm -hmm. so they said okay so uh and i ended up with this girl that nobody really thought was going to do anything and um i coached her for three and a half years there um and she threw the hammer you know the ball on the wire and she ended up on the British team. Nobody ever thought this girl was going to make the – she was actually world junior champion, which nobody ever thought she was going to do. And I'm sounding like I'm boasting, but, the, but there's a point to this. And 
early, I think the first year I coached her, she won World Juniors. And then two years later, she's on her first Olympic team and she actually made the final, okay? So in an Olympic setting, what happens is you, you come out one day and you get, if you're in the throws, and you go through a qualifying round, okay? So you get three throws, that's it, three attempts. And if, you, if you're in the top 12, then you come back the next day, you get, you get another three and then another three. But the, the next day is the final. Only eight get, get to go to the, uh, sorry, uh, 12 get to go to the final and then they get three throws the next, and then it goes down to the last eight. Jeez, I've got to think about the numbers. <laughs> it's been a while. Anyways, point is this, is she won the World Junior Championships on her last throw. Okay, last throw of the competition. It's kind of a rare thing in our in our mm -hmm. world. She was known for doing this. She won, she made the final and broke British both times. She broke British records. Actually, uh, she made the final at the Olympics on her last throw. Broke British in the stadium. That's kind of a rare thing too, right? Um, and you know, she did it on fear. This girl was best competitor I have ever seen that I've certainly I've ever coached and one of the best I've ever seen because she just feared losing like, <laughs> I hate to say it it doesn't it doesn't fit in with a lot of the uh, with with the uh, with the narrative or the you know or what a lot of us are taught to sort of teach athletes you know we're taught to you know oh they you know they have to create balance you know we need to help them create balance in their life and fuck that this girl this girl I mean, that that was her thing that's all okay and she she struggled with it like sure. it was just it was difficult she was a difficult girl to at sometimes to work with because of this fear she would she would just but she, you know, you, you could also call it a hatred of losing, right? right? But man, it, hatred's not strong enough, man. It, it's not strong enough. It's it fear. And I swear to God, oh, she also won an Olympic bronze medal with an American coach year in the next Olympics, okay? We're talking, this girl's half the size of the other girls in the field, right? She won it on her last throw, Olympic medal. I swear to God, man, all three times, World Juniors, her first Olympic set, and when she won the medal, she just fucking willed it out there yeah. on, on the last throw because, because she just couldn't bear to lose. But don't you think that's part of the training from her training and her experience? And Well, yeah. she has to have the, yes, right. she, I mean, she has to have the tools. And that's our job is to put the tools into her and get her, get her prepared, right? But, you know, and, and some athletes, maybe it's not so much fear driven, it's other things, but I, I don't, but my point is, I agree with you. It's not a bad thing. And if I had of probably earlier on in my career, when I was younger, I would have tried to squash that in her. Like mm -hmm. I would have tried to have, uh, you know, um, I don't know what I would have done exactly in that case, but I mean, I would have like made it such an issue that, that, uh, trying to get her to be another way but in in her case i was just like this is just who she is but it, just let her be who she is you're right and and it it's you know just that just leave it okay but she'll be all right yeah but you also think about when when you're you're afraid your body is going into hyperdrive you're you're releasing serotonin dopamine all those neurotransmitters are firing like let's do this let's go yeah. because you're in a flight or 
fight or flight response. Right. So your body is just firing all cylinders. And a lot of times when you work in the ER, probably an athlete, like, when you have this craziness, you don't think about going to the bathroom or eating yeah. or anything. Like, let's just go. Let's yeah. just do that. And you're exhausted afterward. But yeah. I, I feel like that's when you're best, when you're critical totally. thinking and when you're doing something because you are all in. And there's nothing – you are so laser-focused on what you need to do that yeah. I think it's just a physiological response. That, that girl, she's like, I don't want to lose. I'm afraid of losing. Everything's firing. Let's just do this. Let's go. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally, totally. Oh, my God. She was – it was, yeah, it was a, the two times that I was, you know, that, I mean, I saw her do it a number of times, but particularly at, at that Olympics. And then uh, I, and I didn't coach her after that. Um, uh, American guy did, well, he's actually Swedish, but um, he's lived in the U.S. for like 30 years. Anyways, uh, you know, just, but to be a part of that and watch that was just, it was truly Amazing. something special. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. And I, I think that's uh, you know you, sometimes you got to let them you got to let them be who they're going to be right exactly. I mean, so in terms of these personalities you know that you work with as a as a leader of these five hospitals or was it five hospitals it was eight at one time okay um, like how do you manage the different personalities that that you have to deal with like and and what happens in an ER setting if doctors have different opinions how do you like. You know, like second opinion is one thing if you've been told you have, you know, something that's maybe chronic or non-life-threatening, you know, but second opinion is a different. Is there second opinions in, in, in ER medicine? I mean, does that even happen? Uh, not really. There's something called peer review. If a case goes awry, we discuss it as a group and we have a, a judgment of if they messed up or what they think we could have done differently. But right. yeah. Because there's no time to run to another doctor. No, not really. But sometimes you can bounce. If, if you're working single shift, there's nobody to bounce it off of. But right. if, you're, if you're double coverage, sometimes you, you go, hey, what do you, what do you think of this case? So we, we bounce stuff off of each other all the time. Right, right. It, right. And, I, and it's kind of, hey, I got this guy, XYZ, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, this is what I'm doing. He's like, yeah, I would throw on XYZ. All right, cool. Or that sounds appropriate. Yeah, we do that all the time. Right. You, you told me once that... Um, when things are really bad, I think it's, you said when there, there's a certain level of uh, what uh, what do you call it? a a, a, a puncture? Uh, what did you call it at the beginning? Uh, invasive uh, wound penetrating room? Pe penetrating, yeah. penetrating. Yeah, yeah. So when when something like that ha happens, I don't know whether uh, you know. And there there's a there's like the doors to the ER automatically shut. You said. Yeah. So at most most hospitals, if 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 you work in a level one or usually places or hospitals that see um, a lot of penetrating trauma, like gunshots, stabbing, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, we go on lockdown just because I know this is like in New York or L.A. or Chicago. Um, if, they're, if they're gang affiliated right. and somebody shoots somebody up. You're, you're worried about them following in. Yeah, for sure. Oh my so God. we have to lock, we lock it up because – and this happens everywhere because – People are going to, I mean, those people talk about fear. They just want to finish a job. Right, right. So we have to go on lockdown, and security guys are out front to make sure nobody comes into the hospital. This right. happens almost everywhere. So if you're in there and you're on, well, let's say you're on lockdown, but you've got multiple of these things going on, which I'm sure has happened, yeah, right? Sure. You know, if three or four people get shot and they all come to your yeah. hospital, like, how do you manage that? mentally yourself like how do you you know how do you stay on task 
going from one patient to another or one trauma situation to another. And the reason I'm asking this is because in coaching at, at the highest levels, you will, you can, you can at times find yourself in situations where you're in a really high stress environment with multiple athletes all competing at the same time, you know, and I'm not comparing again, you know, someone throwing a, a discus or running a hundred meters with, with what you're doing, but I'm, you know, I'm trying no, to make it's, an analogy, it's, no, it's, it's very but to similar. them it's important, right? No, and it's very, it's yeah. very similar. So yeah. let's say you have three athletes or I have three trauma patients. Number one is you go to the sickest one first. I guess your athlete who needs the most coaching right. first because right. some people are on autopilot, you know? Yeah. The one who has one th- on, on his last throw to make qualifying and he was expected to win the whole thing, sure. right? And he's freaking out, right? So yeah, like everything like that, it's, you got to multitask, you got to compartmentalize. So, and it's, for us, it's mostly algorithm-based. So for me, gunshot wounds, they're not easy, but it's algorithm. Like somebody's in charge of airways. Somebody's in charge of like the, the pelvis areas. We all know our roles. Yeah, okay. So we just kind of go, like, let's go. Like, I got airway. Like, as the ER doctor, I got airway. The trauma surgeon has got the chest and the belly, and somebody in the nurse has got, like, the IV. So we all have, like, and we have, like, little areas that we all stand. Okay. So we have different areas that so we've done this so many times it's just rot memorization right. and just doing it everybody over just instantly over. goes let's to just go yeah right. boom 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 okay somebody else coming all right somebody can peel off and see that guy if they need it they'll bounce it over but it's just we just do it right. it's just because we've done it so many times and it's just routine i mean and then we move on to the next one but how and like emotionally how do we deal with it nothing we just well you know. i'm just thinking mentally how do you keep how do you keep your game face on when you are, um, you know, like, how do you maintain your your game face when you're going from one to another? And let's say, you know, um, the last one was, you know, your mind sure. is still spinning from it. And then you and then, you know, you talked earlier, you maybe have to go out and talk to it. I don't want to get back into talking to family or anything like that but you know it, it, you, or do you just not think about it or so, is, yeah. is it just something that you adapt to mentally from doing you just get good at it like i feel like being the er it's usually on fire 24 7 there's tons of patients you don't know what's coming through the door right. and you're just so that's what i'm talking about. laser focused that all the outside bullshit i don't even think about it. like i hate to say this but when i'm working a shift and it's busy like i don't think about anything except the patient in front of me and I think that's just been doing it for 15 years. You got right. somebody like, you have my 100% focus. I'm not thinking about anything else. Like, let's go, let's do this. Right. When I'm done with this, all right. And then I think, all right, what do I have to do? Okay, the other patient, let's go. Boom, boom. And that, that's done, next one. Right. And it's still in the back. But you just, you have to be so, and that's just training. That's just, just training. So, so they, don't, they, don't, they don't teach you that in, in doctor school. In medical school? I mean, I, I, a if lot of If you have a it, young guy coming in, like you, yeah. you, have, you have a young uh, intern, I guess is yeah. what you call him, right? Um, coming in I, i'm gonna assume that i mean to you it sounds that's natural you, you're just laser focused on, yeah. the, on that one but was it always like that no I it's mean, coaching it's right like like we usually want to have interns like like they don't know their ass from their elbow you know right, and right. like just stick on my hip that's how yeah. you learn yeah questions let me go and you don't want them in front of one patient and there's and the guy that they were just at two beds down died Right, no, and, br- and, no. and that's spinning through their head, and they're still thinking about that. And and now they got to think about this guy who's 
90 no, seconds I, from dying. I want him. I want him next to me and see. This is how you. This is how you work. Right. This is it. This is what you signed up for. Right. And like, and I feel like it brings a certain person, probably an athlete as well, who wants to compete on that level. You have the innate abilities. You can't teach somebody to want it. You know, you either got the goods or you don't. Right. You can't force somebody to get it. Like, and sometimes people. Like this is not for them, or they choose not to live, go in a level one center. They and may want and that happens. Trip. They of just course. leave it, yeah. or they go, or, or maybe this is not setting for them. They don't want the blood and guts. Maybe they want like the more laid back. The, you know, it's a different setting. So with my job, you can kind of choose what you want. Like I like the blood and the guts and the craziness. That's that's my personality. That's what I like, and I like multitasking, and it it caters to a certain person who likes that. And I feel not, and I hate this, but. Not everybody has it, kind of like athletes. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has that, that, that instinct that to be able to be laser-focused in that moment at that time and then break off and deal with something else. But you've you got to compartmentalize. Otherwise, you'd be spinning your head like crazy. you got to multitask. you got to have some type of ADHD in Yeah, you. totally, totally. You have to have totally. ADHD. I mean, most yeah, of us do. A lot, not all, but a lot of the best athletes that I've coached or seen have that in them, right? Not all of them, but it does, if you can, it's, it's a, it's a curse and a blessing, right? Like it's a blessing because, you know, they can, they can be, they can be so laser focused, but for a very short period of time, and then they go to something else. You have to, you have to, you have to teach them to manage that, right? They have to, they have to be able to, to handle it. Um, And it's, you know, in training, it's usually, it's not that big a deal, but when it becomes a big deal is when they're under pressure. Right, like really under pressure, and then then you see the, the uh, then it, then you know all the uh, you know all the rivets start to pop, right? Because because they're they're starting to break down mentally because you know it's it's so it's so so hard on so them. The, but, yeah. So you have to you have to teach them that, you and ha- sometimes yeah. it comes from just you you the, the way to deal with it. You don't necessarily teach them. You compete the shit out of them. You right. make sure they just go to comp to comp to comp to comp, and they. They eventually learn to relax in the setting sure. and then they can then they become you know it's a skill it can be learned but some don't some some learn. never learn it some some just you know they just never learn how to manage like, i just i just think about like the hand-to-hand combat like professional box boxers and professional mma especially mma they're in the ring for five minutes and if somebody's getting a choke code how do you learn how to breathe and relax yeah that's probably all training boxers you're going in and someone wants to knock your your head off and how, how do you take a shot instead of being tense? Just take the shot. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. I think that's all, it's all learned. I meant to mention at the beginning that you're a boxer. And COVID, COVID. <laughs> you got me into boxing. We ended up in the, I ended up joining the same gym that you were at before. Um, and you were just about to do your first amateur, real amateur fight. And then COVID hit, and yeah. it all got canceled. That's too bad. How's training going right now, by the way? I mean, it's so sad because you're back I, into it. So yeah, but it's not the same. I mean, I lost 15 pounds. I was training like four days a week. I was so ready to go, and that was the worst. That I was fighting in two days, and I was just nervous. I wasn't even thinking about anything else. I was just so nervous about that fight, and then they canceled it, and I was so nervous and so anxious, and I wasn't sleeping, and I I thought like they canceled it, I get a wave of kind of wow, I don't have to worry about that. And then I felt just upset and sad yeah. that I did all this training, and then they canceled it. And I couldn't even imagine what professional athletes had to oh, go through training God, for yeah. Olympics. Yeah. And so the question is, that really, 
I mean, that really goes to the fact is how resilient are you as an athlete? If you're dealt with adversity, if it's losing a match, if it's training for something and they cancel it, let's say you're fighting somebody or something they didn't make weight or something happened. How do you say, all right, I trained so hard and I can't even compete? And how do I get back from the gym and say, all right, I'm going to be ready for next time and, and make sure you don't have that inevitable, that, that kind of the, the, down, the downslope, yeah. or the downstream. But that, so that's, that's the tenacity that people have. That's it's going to be interesting when this all ends or, you know, blow, I wouldn't say blows over is probably not the term, but when, but we finally get, find ourselves out of this. I'm not doing a lot of active coaching right now. I'm doing a little bit. I'm about to start coaching a girl here in uh, Chicago, but it hasn't started yet. But um, it'll be interesting to hear from my colleagues how athletes are dealing with that because it's a long period, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they are having competitions, but not, it's not, not the ones that, are, that drive them, right? Correct. Like world champs, Olympics. Olympics has been postponed, and God only knows if it's going to actually happen. But one of the characteristics about athletes – um, high-end athletes are the best athletes is that no matter what there's no stopping them right like sure. I mean from the time that they knew they wanted to do what they're doing there's no nobody's gonna get in their way well people that's one of the one of the things I say in my the sport parent course I do and when I talk to coaches is like sometimes it's not about managing the athlete it's about it's about not managing them. It's about getting out of the way. Like, just make sure they, they're in the, the environment they're in, which is that's your coaching, and you're, you're, you're presenting, you know, you're, you're giving them the program. But really, overall, you just need to get the fuck out of the way because they're so talented mm -hmm. and they're so driven that it's, it, at a high level, it becomes more about what you don't do than what you do do. There's no such thing, in my mind, with you know there's exceptions to this but you're really not motivating high-end athletes it's always more about bringing them back calming them down demotivating them because if you let them go they'll kill themselves right like they'll, they'll work themselves into the ground or they'll drive themselves crazy or something like that right mm -hmm. so it's really um it's you know the the perception a lot of people have about coaching at, you know, and, and this applies to a lot of levels. But when you're, when you're talking about really, really talented athletes, they, they, they just are talented in anything. Mm -hmm. There's no stopping them. They are going to go. They, or they are going to get it done. They're going to find a way. So rather, like if you're a parent, right, of, of an athlete like that, that kind of changes the way you think about it, right? You don't need to do all this shit that you see par parents doing. The more input you have into it, the more you're just getting in their way. They know what the, the they may not even be aware of it, but they know what they need to do. It'll just leave them alone. They'll, they'll find their way to some degree. Your job is to make sure that they they're in the right environment for that sure. to happen. And once you've done that, you just you just step out of the way and let them do their thing. But um, so what about, that's a question, so what about the athlete who is incredibly talented and they have created, but they don't have that drive? Yeah, they're fucked. Yeah, right, you have to have both. Yeah, they're, 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 they're not, um, there's not, that's what I mean. You, you, you can't, no, you, you, can, you can motivate them to a certain level to get through this or get through that, but 
dude, I mean, you know, it's, it's, you're talking about for an athlete to peak, if it's done properly, you're talking about on average 10 years of high performance training. Okay. Yeah. Now that is, you're probably looking at six to 12 workouts a week could be five of those are intensive and intensive yeah. like you know uh the, the normal person does just can't can't really understand what i'm talking about when i say intensive like they're intense now they train for it and they mm -hmm. adapt to it and all of that but that is very difficult sure. to manage and no amount of money or no amount of fame or fortune is going to, and all those are factors that do help bring the athlete right. along, right? But without the intrinsic desire, it's just not going to happen, right? Right? And and you know, it, it's that desire, I believe, comes from when they're first introduced to the sport. There needs to be a an element of they need to experience a a large degree of play experience okay so they need to be able to just have fun in the sport and not be over managed and not be over um, structured and that's where that desire comes from you know and you know sometimes you have to try different sports before they find the one that does flick flip the switch right but every single athlete that I've ever seen or worked with Every single one had this. They they were just there was there's never a question if they were going to show up to work up. Yeah. There was just never a question. I mean, it's not even not on anyone's radar, right? They they're going to be there. They're going to be ready to go. And you know, right? Yeah. It's more about stopping them from doing too much and and calming them down and and that kind of thing, right? Because th there's not you know. Um, like you don't have, you know, your best ER doctors, you're, 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 you're not, you know, if they're supposed to be in there at five o'clock to start their shift, you're, you're not, you're not consistently going, oh my God, it's five fifteen. Where's Joe. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're there. Yeah. They're there. They're ready to go. And as soon yeah. as they get there, boom, they're, you know, that's what these, there's just no question. So, and when you're talking about, you know, 10 years of that and some athletes, it's 12, 14, 16 years. I mean, that's that there's, you know, like I said, there's no amount of, of external reward that that is strong enough to pull them right. through that. Now, there may be the odd example, maybe Tiger Woods, you know, mm. um, you know, got through it somehow. But I'm I guarantee you, T Tiger Woods, for whatever went on with him and his dad or whatever people talk about, I'm, who knows what really mm. the truth is, but you know that he had it of course yeah. he had it because he just wants to be good Might all be, the fucking all the time. time right yeah that's what they have they don't they don't you don't no one has to remind them to practice no right. one has to remind them to do this now you may have to help them manage their lifestyle because that's a skill too mm -hmm. but in terms of showing up and getting the work done no Fair. there's never a question Okay, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. But, um, and this is the one I've been setting you up for. <laughs> um, a, a, my boss, when I was in England, was uh, Dutch. Uh, he was hired. He was the guy. He's the head coach. And he was uh, hired to lead all of us into that Olympics. And he did a great job. And he's become a good friend of mine uh, since then. Um, his name is Charles. 
And he said to me once, he said, you know, people don't understand that, or a lot of coaches don't understand that professional coaching is a lifestyle, not a job, right? And you and I have chatted about this informally when we, we run into each other in our, on our back patio or whenever. When you have a job like this, and it is a lifestyle, so even though you know you have shifts at the hospital, you know time spent at work, very hard to shut it off when you come home and be present. One of the things that I struggled with a lot when I was uh, when my kids were younger was because when my when I was in Britain, I mean that job was twenty four seven, man. Mm-hmm. I mean you were just like you weren't there twenty four seven, but mentally you were there twenty four seven, right? And and I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have that to calm me down. Um, so how do you manage it to come home? And you have, you have a one and a half and a three-year-old. How do you manage it um, in terms of, I mean, maybe not shutting it off, but be present mentally for your family after you've come off of a shift where four, you've seen 14 people get shot or something like that, right? I mean, or you... You have, you know, all these issues at work that are, you know, it's on you, right? Or you're building a hospital like mm-hmm. you did. I mean, that was a huge load on your shoulders because we talked about it. Um, you know, like how does that, how do you manage that? I struggle with it. Yeah. Um, it's really hard. To be honest with you, I've been reading some books like by Howard Schultz. He's a CEO of Starbucks. I've heard that name. Yeah, he's, oh, a C- yeah. he's oh, okay. he founded Starbucks. And I wish I had a better way. Um, I think physical activity would help. Just an hour to get your mind kind of clear. But it's 24-7, especially mm. being a CEO of a new hospital. It's really hard to be present. What mm. I've, I've tr- I, you know, I feel like I, I do, it's a balancing act. So I feel like you're on, you're on a, a three-legged stool. You have your job, you have your kids, and then you have your wife. And all those got to be strong. And a lot of times it's not. So the hospital's going good. Seeing my kids doing it, but I'm not treating my wife the way she needs to be, like going for date nights or yeah. for a time. You're not or, attentive. Yeah, not yeah. attentive. Or yeah. with my And even kids. when you are there, sometimes you're not there. Sometimes not there. Yeah. Especially with my kids. Sometimes with my kids, and sometimes they say, Daddy, put the phone away. I'm like, you're absolutely right. It's really hard to put the phone down. Um, and I'm struggling with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you, man. And we, we, I, I, I mean, yeah, but dude, I watch you, like I watch you with Jack and, and Ricky, but I watch you, you know, you come home, you, I mean, you look exhausted and, and, and coming home for you could be six o'clock in the afternoon or it could be two in the morning or it could be whatever. Right. And you come home these, you know, and it's never the same. And that itself is a stress, like not having regular sleep patterns. Holy shit. But that's a whole nother thing. But, you know, and I watch, I mean, I remember it wasn't long ago, the other night, man, we were all, we were all out front. We were chatting, you know, all the boys are out there, and uh, which is on my neighbors. And, uh, you know, the, the guys who drink all got to drink. And you came out, and you've got um, Jack in his little car, and you just kind of walk right by. So you don't, you know, you kind of say, oh, you, don't, you know enough not to engage and, 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 you know, spend your time with him, and then you go back home. I mean... You know, a lot of people don't do that, man. Like, you know, I told you before we were chatting about this, I said, like, look, 
I'm a, I'm an expert in very few things. Okay. Um, I'm an expert in a very, very niche part of training methodology and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I'm an expert in one event. I'm a, you know, in a sport that a lot of people around here really don't understand. But one thing I, I, I think I am an expert in, um, I mean, aside from those two very small things is I, I've seen good parenting. Okay. So when you are a coach, um, of a, uh, you know, in a club setting where you're dealing with developmental athletes, and I did that for years and years, um, you get intimate with families the way that teachers don't, okay? Because you are, or most teachers don't. So, you know, you're, you're, you're going over to their homes on a regular basis. You're dropping kids off. You're driving them around, you know. So you get, you know, I've seen the best, okay? Um, I'm not great, and I, one of my regrets is that at that time when my kids were your kids' age, I was a lot of the time I wasn't there. We were adopting mass at that time, you know, when he came home and I mean, that's, you know, I, I mean, I was okay. I was good, but I wasn't good. A, a lot of, I, I really wish, I mean, maybe my standards for myself are too high, but I, but I really wish I had done a better job that way. But you blow me away. You're a good dad, dude. Like you, you I mean, you really that. are. And, uh, and you and your wife, do a great job from my perspective, you know, unless you're beating them inside the house and I'm not, I'm not <laughs> beating us. <laughs> you do, but, but that's difficult, right? Like it's, it's not easy because you come home. You, I mean, you know, my wife works this job where she is like, it's, it's an, it's another one of those jobs. It's 24 yeah. seven man. And, and it's insane. The emails she gets like, oh, sure. She, she went out, we, we, we went out once for two and a half, three hours and she came and, she came home. She had 300 emails. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not embellishing that. It was like 350 or something. It was like, it, you know, um, it's not unusual for her to get 100 emails in two hours or an hour. Like that's that's not a regular occurrence, right? And when she's at my point is this: is when when she finishes her day, she doesn't want to read, right? She she doesn't want to talk to anybody on the phone. She wants to sit down, relax. And watch TV, but we're at the stage now where our kids—well, our kids probably need more attention than we're giving them. <laughs> we t we talk about how bad we are as parents all the time about it, but we just want to sit. She just wants to sit and vegetate. Yeah. Watch an hour of TV, man, then go to bed. That's it. So, you know, um, I, I'm not sure if there's a question there, right? But it's it's like you know. I, 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 I feel your I, I feel I, I know how difficult that I'm, is. As yeah, well. and I appreciate it, dude. I'm fucking exhausted. Yeah. I mean, and and it's weird because most people now with COVID are at home. They're working from home, more time with family. You know, they're mm -hmm. around the house they, because they're probably at work. You know, husband and wife, you know, eight to five, Monday yeah. through Friday. They're now they're home. Yeah. And I'm like the opposite. Yeah. I'm, Co COVID's actually been good for us in a lot of ways as a family. Yeah, and, and I and nothing changed. Like my wife doesn't leave the house. She goes to the grocery store, that's it. I'm still going to work, coming home. And when I come home, like it's exhausting because yeah. but if I don't do it with my kids, I'm not gonna have, I'm not gonna get that I'm not gonna get the time back. Yeah. Yeah. He's one and a half, two and a half. But like when I work in seven AM to five and I come home, like I have to be quiet because I gotta grump serious take my scrubs off, put them in the washing machine and jump in the shower. And if they hear me, 
they're, I that's can't even it. take a that's shower. It. Yeah, I know. Like, they're in my shower. <laughs> you you like, can always come over Jared here and shower, in, dude, if, if like, that's a problem. And I have to no, be quiet. Like, he's in the shower. Like, I don't have five minutes. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I remember those days, dude. Yeah, I remember. And then, I, like, my I, wife is like, 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 here, take him. I'm like, I'm, I'm, we're both just drained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you feel like, and then you feel guilty because you're thinking, fuck, I, was, I wish I was back at work. <laughs> It's fair. It's hey, listen, man. Well, maybe Melissa won't hear this, but maybe. <laughs> but I, I used to be like that all the time. I mean, back then when it, you know it's like God, man, I'd rather be out freaking coaching than than you know listen to this shit go on, right? Because you know kids are screaming or they're you know they're they're wanting your attention and 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 um, man, it's I know I know it's difficult. Well, it, we're we we we're not out of the woods in that sense yet. Here, it's, it gets better as they grow older. Um, and maybe, you know, like I said, COVID in a lot of ways has actually been good for us. I don't know if it's been great for my kids because it's too much time in front of a screen and sure. too much time at home. And we're, we're trying, we're struggling with that big time, but. Well, and I feel like people resent but me. Like you need to get up and go to work. I'm like, yeah, I get to swim in a sea of COVID all day. Yeah. It's not oh like my great. God. That's it. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. But yeah. you're right. But it's, I still, I can still do my job, but. For for the stay at home dads or moms now with COVID, it especially little kids, that's gonna be the hardest job in the world. Yeah, you can't yeah. go anywhere. You can't drop. Where are you gonna drop them off? Yeah, there's, yeah. there's nothing. Well, you never get away from them. You never get away. You're yeah. with them all from morning yeah. to night. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's yeah. No, 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 no man. Oh. It's it's and there's a you know and if you and then when you I mean I you know you 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 know t- I mean I don't know about you but sometimes you know I would just snap and I would yeah. be like you know I'd either you know, I'd either bark, explode, uh, and then you've got the guilt that comes with that, right? Because afterwards you're like, you're like, oh my god, like you know, just so such an asshole, you know. And then yeah. then you got you know, your kids aren't old enough yet, but with mine, you know, if I lose my shit, it doesn't happen mu- that much anymore. But I'm gonna try not to, anyways. But it's always been an issue with me, and so I, sure. uh, you know, I will have to. Oh, I'll wait, and I'll go back into their room, sit down, say, look, you know, and I'll I'll just say to them, look. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That was stupid. Yeah. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, parents weren't saying this to their kids, no. right? Not, not really, right? And, and, and maybe they aren't now, but I, I don't know. Probably more than I, than we think. But I'll sit down. And I'll say, you know, I've said to my kids at times, look, don't be like me. Sure. Don't be like <laughs> me. Like <laughs> you know, it. because I'm afraid I'm setting a bad example, yeah. right? And and I don't know any other way. I'm trying to change. I'm trying to manage it. But fuck, man, you got all this this weighing on you, you know, and, and all this, and, and you, sna- you know, it's, it's, look, and some I, of us, it's look, our nature. Yeah, to- but I, I think it takes a real strong man or woman to set pride at the door because all of us, I mean, that's part of the, like, who we are, especially yeah. people who are coaches and athletes and people have careers that push them to the precipice every single day. So, you kind of have to check. That's that's hard. That's the thing we all struggle with. You kind of got to check that in the door, and sometimes you gotta you gotta eat some shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? To yeah. to have peace around, yeah. just suck it up. And some people can't do it. You just gotta eat some shit. I was talking to, again, I was I did this my my other podcast yesterday. The first part of it with my with my buddy Stu, and he he's single, but you know he he, he like everybody else, you know he's dealing with issues and stuff and so he's part of this online group he was talking about about coaches and professionals Mm -hmm. guys at the high high end of our of our sport and 
uh, anyways, and he was saying, you know, it's work, right, to be to to, to maintain that kind of, you know, that level of uh, sanity or um, sort of, you know, mental health, mm-hmm. whatever your definition or your level of that is, and and you know, he's right. I mean, I, I learned that when I quit drinking. I mean, it's it's work. You you have to put, you know, the moment you stop working on that for you for me it's reading books right and for you you know you're you, you, you said you're i have four books I'm like, i don't even have time to read yeah a book. i know i, I love to read a book well what what, yeah. what i've learned to do is i'm a bit of an insomniac like mm-hmm. I, I don't have a problem getting to sleep but I, i'm up early i'm up yeah, for early. sure so i'm i'm always up between shit the other, three days ago i was up at 3 30 in the morning but um i'm usually up between 4 30 and 5 30 and i get up like two hours before everybody else and i sit down and I read, right? That's and awesome. you know, and that's uh, you know, that that that's really helped. And and working out, like I'm back. It's been a For year sure. now. Like you know, you got me back into the gym. I started the boxing thing, and then I hurt my arm, and and um, so I had to stop that because it was just it's been over a year now. It still bothered me, but 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 I started lifting, and and so now I you know my son and I most mornings we go for an hour ride on the bike at seven, and then we hit the gym, and then I come home. And, and uh, you know, between like five and seven, I've read. And then I'm ready to start my day. It takes that to keep me calm. <laughs> but but th- that's what I think that we're bad at. I think a lot of us do things very well. I think routine is so important. Totally. Okay, here's an example. And I'm sure a lot of people do this. If I get up, I always wake up at 3 a.m. I just, I just, I'm up I'm like 3 or 5 when I go to sleep. I always check my emails. Why, why, why the fuck am I oh, checking my emails at three the in the morning? That's kiss of death right there. It's man. terrible. Yeah. So what I try to do, and it's hard, I try to leave my cell phone in the bathroom, plugged in, so I, don't, I can't check it. The second thing, which I used to do before I started this job, I used to not even meditate. I used to sit, just Indian style, and just breathe for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Just to, I set the alarm because 10 minutes, it, it, it doesn't sound like a, it's a long time. Just sit, shut five minutes. Just sit yeah, down totally. and just breathe for five minutes. And I used to do that, and used to start my day just fresh. And I, I went away from that, and, I, and just having this conversation, I gotta get back into. Yeah, you that. should. You should. Me, me too. I, but my mind is racing. I mean, I'm just one of these minds that races all, all the, the time. I, but I think we all of us look. Look at we have so much in the. There's so much going on from from climate change to politics oh to religion oh to the constant barrage of data and news Dude. like it does and it's way worse stop here. it's way worse here. oh in america like oh, yeah, moving here sure. no offense to any american out. listening to this but man you guys put so much unnecessary stress on yourselves it's fucking unbelievable like from your healthcare situation your politics and now you've got covid and you know the political divide oh my god there's so much to worry about i mean i mean yeah. it's just like you know, and not that we all. Well, I mean, these are real things, right? Like they're they're real stress. Yeah, we especially are, COVID. Americans are so okay. Just because I, I lived in Australia, and New Zealand, and they, and I think a lot of the world does, they work so they can enjoy their life. We are the opposite yeah. here. We just work, and, and and I know that Americans actually look at people from Spain and their siesta like, oh, that's laughable. Why is it laughable? They take a couple hours to relax yeah, before they open yeah. up. Or you eat in Argentina, yeah. you eat dinner at 10 yeah. o'clock. How, how cool is that? They're like, that's yeah. insane. And then you can't get up in the morning. We're just programmed differently from a yeah. young age in America just to go, well, go, go. Well, Canadians aren't that far off either. But, you know, <laughs> and we look at we look at people who don't have what we have. You know, they're not living in a million-dollar house, and they're not, uh, you, you know, they don't drive fancy cars. Like in a, a third-world country, or, you know, 
maybe yeah, that's an extreme example, but in, people in other cultures who don't have what we have in terms of material things, and we, and we think, you know, we kind of feel sorry for them. Sometimes I look at them and I'm like, you kidding me, man? They're the ones who've got it right. They're the ones who Shit. understand, you know, what, what life is really about. Because, you know, I've been started sort of floating a lot of this around in my head lately. And I, um, you know, I, I guess I'm at that. How old are you right now? 44. 44. 44. Okay. So you, you had kids about the same time I did. 40. I, 40. I had my first kid at 40. And, and um, now I'm 55. So you start to think about, you know, you, I'm at that stage. You start to think about things because death is coming up soon. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, um, you know, the moments like you have those great moments like you, you know, you're, oh my God, I, I'm so glad I remember this. You, you took Jack out one day and you followed the garbage truck in our neighborhood around. Do you have a Friday? <laughs> I love that. Tim, Tim's his buddy. Tim the garbage the truck. Man. He's a year and a half old. He loves trucks, he loves man. It. He's a boy, man. He's I, a boy. I wish I was just happy about anything. I was the truck. <laughs> totally, totally. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, my God. He's a truck. He's and a you shit. follow, you know, and like, you know, or you listen to a piece of music that takes you back to a yeah. time and you just forget about everything. You think about that, you know, I, you know. I, I honestly think, man, that's that's all we get, right? That's yeah. that's all we really get. That's it's like things don't, things aren't supposed to get better than that. I don't think, and we and we think, f for the most part, right? And we think by getting all this shit, um, that you know there is a place that we need to get to go, you know, blah blah blah. And it's like, no, you know, if you just relax, you you can actually experience those moments. They're they're actually all around you, right? Mm -hmm. You just you just, they just, you don't appreciate them. They, they pass you by. And it's like, for me, it's like, I'm really starting to, um, you know, when those things happen, I kind of stop and I kind of, I, I try to think, oh yeah, okay, this is what it's all, just stop. Like when I quit drinking um, early on, I, I was like, there would be moments, I would have these moments of clarity and I would, I, something would happen and I would go, okay, well, if I was still drinking, this wouldn't have happened, mm -hmm. right? Like this, like I would not be enjoying this right now because if I was drinking, I would be, I'd be shit-faced in the corner. Or I'd be, you know, I'd be, you know, whatever, drive my car drunk home or something like that. And, and I would stop and just mentally think about it. Like that's it. That's all. I mean, that's the simplest way I could put it. I'd think about it. And that would go into the bank, right? Mm -hmm. Go into the mental bank. And I would be like, Okay, and you get enough of those, yeah. and far enough away from the last time you 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 drank, you were shit face. And you know, when I drank, I mean, I never drank. I mean, I never had a drink up front, like you know, just a drink. I mean, it was always no, shit. You, I'm, you, I'm, you're like an athlete; you I'm do everything all or nothing. Totally, none. No, totally, yeah, totally. So, anyways, and that's what this is like. This is what I'm thinking. You know, it's like this. This is I'm trying to every time one of these moments come. I'm, I'm I have a a great game of ping pong mm -hmm. with my kids or. Uh, a great moment with mass or something like that, you know, uh, or a song comes on. I feel really good, you know, uh, That's good stuff. yeah, I just like, okay, this is it. This is as good as it gets, man. Stop trying to tr stop trying to make it better, and, you know? Yeah. You know? And, and, and I think it's, I think we got to stay away. I know it sounds, I think you have to do a digital clean. Sometimes you gotta stop looking at the social media and the totally. news. Like I, yeah. I pretty much, 
I was did a lot of couple of interviews the last couple of months for COVID, but I don't watch the news anymore, and I'm so much happier. Yeah, totally. <laughs> same, same here. I, I don't. I it's use not like I'm burying my head in the sand. Work. It's just like, look at. I hear the big things, but it's not going to change anything right now. It's going to kill everybody eventually, man. It's, I mean, so it's so stressed out. Yeah, yeah. And and you you guys are still at the stages when you can manage that with you know yeah. like you you your kids haven't quite got on it yet which is good they shouldn't be right you, you know that we've talked about that my advice hold it off as long as you fucking can the devices like the phones like my no, matter, no matter what their friends YouTube. are doing no matter oh, hold okay. off yeah. as long as i mean it's going to happen it has to happen eventually hold off as long as you can no matter what it is we held off until this year and we got our kids phones because we're worried about them being this is pre-covid we're just pre-covid we're worried about them being out in chicago sure. without a phone where i come from it wasn't a worry no matter where they were they were safe yeah. not here so they need phones and um but with the phone comes fucking everything else and yeah it's a slippery slope and and anyways i mean but yes yeah, hold off as long as you can because it is not healthy man. i know I know. My, my daughter wakes up every morning and she watches YouTube for an hour. Some stupid shows. But. Well, but, 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 yeah, that's okay. That's but routine. we, we, we all watch though. TV. Yeah. And Saturday mornings, I'd sit in front of the yeah. TV for two or three hours when I was a kid. You know, that's okay. Fair enough. But social media and messaging with, you know, constantly be on your phone, that's different, right? That's, so that's different, a level yeah. of connectivity that's not, you know, I mean... You know, it's fine to, I think, it's fine for them to be sitting for an hour or two a day in front of TV or something like that. But when they are constantly engaged in that mm -hmm. fucking thing, it's really bad. And one of my kids is there. Mm -hmm. One of them manages it very well on his own. And I'm not worried about that. And there's one in the middle. And, you know, it's really, it's uh, it's a scary thing, man. I mean, because it yeah. fucking, it it's, this is this is but this COVID is, yeah. complicates the whole goddamn yeah. thing because how do you keep your you know look man I'm the, I uh, you know tell me if this resonates with you kids are screaming fighting all hells break loose and you have these two little devices here that you can just put in front of them and yeah house is quiet man it's like mmm that's nice but, yeah <laughs> that, but but you're right but that's that's a lot of things I'm worried about downstream effects of COVID especially kids in yep. in, in K and grammar school, especially in high school. I mean, this is so. One thing that I'm concerned about is that t attention span. A, a lot of times, we don't have a great attention span to begin with. I think everybody's got some degree of ADHD. Mm -hmm. When we grew up, we watched cartoons, and if it was a half an hour, we watched we watched the show, we watched the commercials, and we just that's what we did. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, they flip from one video to the next video, next video, next video, every five minutes. Everything's done in in little bites. So I can't even watch a, a whole movie with my kid because they get bored. And I'm also worried about when we, when, as you grow as a person, it's the interaction that you have with people, with friends, going out. They missed a whole year of growing. And is it that much easier to jump up in the saddle? Kids are resilient. Like a lot of adults won't wear a mask because they're idiots. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them think that, that just being responsible, just being a good human, just wear a mask. But I'm worried about kids who are – how easy for them to be jump back in culture, like take the mask off because they're, they're, they're as scared as, as, as we are. I guess what other stuff that keeps me up. I'm that. really worried about it too. I was just thinking about this yesterday. You know, we, we, the whole point of this, these lockdowns and these measures that were taken and I'm in 
full compliance and agreement with all of it. But the problem is, is that what are the what's the long term effect going to be for for this generation of kids who lost? I mean, it was bad enough before COVID with kids not getting enough physical activity. Mm -hmm. Oh man, it just went into warp speed the last eight months. We probably went. I'm not. I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say we went 20 years ahead. You know, Mike. I have a daughter that has probably been out of the house. The only time she's been out of the house since COVID started was for some of her dance lessons, right? You know, and she's done some stuff inside, but she's... So she goes days inside. She goes three or four days. Days and days inside. So does Mass. I mean, Mass's volleyball just started up again last night, so mm -hmm. that's good. We got her. And Polly, you know, she, 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 you know, she's out th two or three times a week to dance. But other than that, no, there's no... Um, well, where's she going to go, right? Like, I mean, there's, like, we moved here. We, you know, they started school. They don't have local friends. Right. There aren't really any kids around her age. Right. You know, I'm not, you know, I mean, it's, you know, and she, she does a good job of managing it, right? She stays, you know, she's fit and she's, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, but it's not, I, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm worried about her, but, it, but I think there are lots of others in way worse situations. Yeah, for sure. You know, and so it's, I think it's, it's really going to be tough, man. I mean, and I don't know, man. It's it's just, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, it's, I think we're all going to have to contribute to fixing this fucking problem once it's, once mm -hmm. the dust clears. Because I think we're, I think we're not fully aware of the damage that's being done right Correct. now. And I don't say that in the context that I think we're doing anything wrong. I say that it's just the way it is, right? Yeah. It's just the way it is. And, but it's going to, maybe this could be the best thing and everybody's going to have to put all their bullshit aside for us to get back to normal. Maybe that's wishful thinking, I but think maybe, that's, maybe that's what's going to happen. I don't know. That's but. why I don't go on social media. It's just people are yelling all the time. I can't tell the trolls. I oh yeah. Can't I, deal can't, with I can't deal with that. I don't I, know. Listen, yeah. man, uh, I think we just solved a bunch of the world's problems. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat with me. I thought it was fantastic, and I this is I, it's great. It went way better than I could have hoped. So, listen. Thanks for all your work. Thanks, thanks for everything Eric, you do. Thanks for being a good neighbor. <laughs> thanks for listening to me babble on every every time I run into mm -hmm. you. Uh, keep looking after your kids and your family, and being a great dad and a great doctor. Thanks. Wonderful. Thanks, Derek. Appreciate right. it. Buddy.